delightful for me to be here. Uh, I'm so glad to be uh, in your midst again. It's been a while. I've missed the men's retreat, which we've done, I don't know how many times. I think I've led the men's retreat at least 25 times, Randy, something like that. Uh, I miss you guys. Yeah, this, this COVID thing's got it in. <laughs> Uh, but God is good, and uh, he sustains us in the midst of all sorts of difficulties. And the difficulties of the world, of course, will be overcome at last by the glory and the mercy and the power of Jesus Christ, who does rule the world. With such things in mind, then let's turn to uh, the last book of the Bible, which is the one that most tells us about the victory of Christ over all matter of the powers of evil. They cannot stand against him. They will fall. And uh, the book of Revelation proclaims that uh, more than any other book. So uh, let us turn our attention then to Revelation chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 1 through 20. Let's pay close attention to the word of God. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
that he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So far, the reading of God's own word. Thanks be to God for his word. Our key text today is from verse 9. I, John, he defines himself as uh, your brother, our brother, and companion, I'll cite the King James terms here, which I did not read in the main reading. Uh, in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance that are ours in Jesus. More recent translations, suffering, kingdom, patient endurance. Older version, tribulation, kingdom, perseverance. I am your brother and companion in these things. They are ours in Jesus. So says John. And in proof of at least one of those points, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Three great things for the sermon, tribulation, kingdom, perseverance. And the main point of the day is this. The kingdom of Christ is already here. Not yet in fullness. But already here, Jesus brought it long ago in a new and more powerful way than what King David or Isaiah or even John the Baptist knew. That kingdom advances amid many enemies. Hence, its true citizens are called to faithful witness amid tribulation, amid persecution. Faithful witness in which God sustains us with perseverance. And we do so until Christ returns to consummate his victory in all heaven and earth. Now, in, in approaching this very strange book of the Bible, almost nothing else like it anywhere in the New Testament, and only one book really, really, really like it in the old, the book of Daniel. We call these books apocalypses from the very uh, first word of this very book, apocalypsis. An apocalypse in English. Uh, the word is not the way Hollywood uses it for disaster. Maybe you saw long ago that film Apocalypse Now. Not that way at all. The word apocalypse does not mean disaster. The word apocalypse means an unveiling, a revealing, a disclosing. And the title of our book then is given in those opening lines, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That is the unveiling, the disclosing of Jesus Christ. The book is about Jesus, not about disaster. It's doxology, not doom, that is the focus of this book. And the book of Revelation bristles with the glories of, of the rays of light of the gospel. We need to learn how to read this book and not read it the way the world reads it and not read it the way, well, pardon me, that some Christians are wont to do as a book of threat but read it as a book of glory and a book that is full of the gospel. Did you notice those lines in verses five and six? He is to the one who is, who has taken away our sins by his blood. 
and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. That's the opening salvo of the book. That sounds awfully good, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Kevin, that sounds awfully good, doesn't it? All right, yeah, the, the one who has taken away our sins by his blood. This is how the book begins, with a blessing upon the glory of Christ for what he's achieved already in his cross and resurrection. I was dead, says this living Jesus. It looked for a moment, well, for three days maybe, that the powers of evil had conquered God. That's how it looked from Friday evening, sundown, until that very early Sunday morning in 30-ish A.D. It looked like evil would win forever. It doesn't. It can't. And so our first uh, tent stake for pitching this tent called Revelation is this Christ himself who has loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. We are loved. We are liberated. We are being made into the holy kingdom already in Christ. That's fact. Let's make that a fine tent stake for tenting, for staking this tent called Revelation. A second tent stake could be found in chapter 5, which is, I think, my favorite chapter in the book. We'll hear that, God willing, later on this summer. I, I'm invited for six occasions by the courtesy and kindness of my, uh, my friend Aaron Garber. So as he's uh, suffering for Jesus in Zimbabwe, here I am, uh, six occasions on Sunday mornings. I'm grateful for the invitation. But in this, uh, this second tent stake, so to speak, in chapter 5, we see the enthronement of the Lamb of God. That enthronement in John's vision is actually an interpretation of what happened long ago in his past. John is writing in the 90s, probably, A.D. But when we see in chapter 5, the Lamb of God ascended to the middle of the throne of God, standing even though he had been slain. We're looking at Ascension Day. We're looking at 30-ish A.D. And John is interpreting the past Past for him, past for us, the past of 30-ish A.D. when Christ was crucified for sinners and rose again and ascended to the Father's throne. And so the Lamb is qualified to take the scroll from the hand of God the Father, the scroll sealed with seven seals, and to break open the seals one by one, and to demonstrate his mastery over all of history that shall unfold thereafter until history reaches its climax in the return of Christ and the final redemption of the world. Notice this Jesus calls himself in this very chapter the ruler of the kings of the earth. Yeah, earth remains permanently relevant. And so our second tent stake is the lamb upon the throne. We sing of it in hymns, don't we? The lamb upon the throne. And we confess with those words that Jesus rules even now amidst the wars and rumors of wars and tribulations of the world. And that somehow in the mystery of this, he is bringing to rule, to consummation, his rule over all of heaven and earth. And for the sake of his church. He rules all things for the sake of his church. Third tent stake. 
we read uh, books uh, in light of um, the opening and in light of the closing, don't we? Imagine, I don't know if you've read The Lord of the Rings, my favorite novel. I'll be objectively clear and say it's the greatest novel in the English language. All my opinions are perfectly true. Um, all right, but if you only read the middle of the three volumes, uh, the two towers, you don't know where you come from or where you're going, right? And it's only when you get to the last that you realize that the world has been set right through great struggle. And characters you meet on the first few pages, well, not all of them survive, but characters you meet near the beginning become to their astonishment, agents of the reclaiming of the world for justice. And we have the return of the king and the setting of things to right. We read a long novel in light of beginning and end. We read the book of Revelation in light of beginning and end. And here's the beginning, which we've heard, but what's the end? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things have passed away. And the voice from the throne says, behold, I make all things new. By the way, that's a very different sentence from saying I make all new things. If he makes all new things, there are no resurrections, right? Our bones stay in the grave and maybe they're annihilated. I make all things new. That's the sentence from the throne. And so we speak of the renewal of heaven and earth and that God's uh, victory claims the world back, and the Lord's prayer is in fact fulfilled. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? What's the next phrase? On earth. On earth. Is it possible that the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and that the church has prayed Every day for 2,000 years in all his various places. Is it possible for this prayer to remain unanswered by the Father? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. On earth as it is in heaven. And Revelation 21 and 22 show us that the new Jerusalem comes down from God to earth. And the boundary line between earth and heaven now becomes irrelevant, a dotted line at best. And God lives with the human race, the redeemed of the race, on earth as it is in heaven. And so we read the story in light of beginning and end. Well, let me tell you about my first three readings of this strange book of Revelation. My first reading was the summer of 1970. I was still a Darwin deist unbeliever. And I made a promise to a friend. We made promises to each other that we wanted to reject Christianity all the more thoroughly than we had. I'd even demanded my name be removed from the role of Beulah Presbyterian Church. <laughs> Some of you will know that congregation out in Churchill. Yeah, I demanded my name be removed. That's how strongly I felt about the matter at the ripe old age of 14 <laughs> when I knew everything. <laughs> All right, so I promised a friend uh, that we would read uh, the, 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 the New Testament so we could reject it all the more thoroughly and be better unbelievers. And so uh, in one or two nights uh, in probably August of 1970 at Boy Scout camp, I read all the New Testament. Uh, well, actually, from June through August, I read all the New Testament. I read Revelation in two or three nights. I thought, okay, I'm done with that. <laughs> Weird. Weird. I, I, I couldn't make anything out of the book. Bizarre, beyond comprehension. And then by God's kindness to an idiot, 
uh, I was surprisingly converted not long after finishing the New Testament. Uh, God convinced me it was true. I woke up and was astonished to find myself a believer in the thing that I had rather ardently hated. And as a new convert, I read the New Testament again. Summer of 71, I was now um, 16 and uh, a new convert among Pentecostals and hothouse charismatics. And, um, and I opened up the guidebook that a friend had recommended. It was um, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. How many, how many remember that? that? Okay, yeah. yeah. And films were made. And, uh, and I, uh, I told God in prayer that as I read this guidebook, I would look up every Bible reference and make sure it was all true, you know, do the good Berean test. That is, uh, you know, check the scriptures to see if the things how Lindsay said were true. And uh, in that particular reading of the book, um, well, let's see. Futurism, rapturism, and Christ returns, get this, by 1988. Yeah, by 1988, because the great sign of prophecy was the reestablishment of Israel as a nation, 1948. And in the citations of the Bible in that book, this generation will live to see it all, Matthew 24. In Hal Lindsey's bizarre interpretation, that was 1948. The generation that saw the restoration of Israel as a nation state would be the generation to see the return of Christ. All right, so nothing later than 1988. I somehow think the evidence is against that claim. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, so that was my second reading of the book. My third reading, I was now a sophomore in college and really knew I knew everything. And a friend had given me a big fat commentary on the New Testament published back in 1840. And in that particular commentary, uh, there was a long discussion as to whether Napoleon was the Antichrist. <laughs> Um, or maybe the Ottoman Turks, which were still threatening to invade Europe. And, um, and the whole book was treated as a treatment of church history from beginning to end. You know, chapter 10, the angel with the little book in his hand, that was the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. Well, I had to scrap that. So three bad readings of the book. It took me a long time to get better readings of the book. And basically, I had to just learn how to read. In a certain way, I'm still learning how to read. And as I read this book, I, I see certain key points, the, the, the tent pegs that we were talking about. And in this book, Jesus is especially portrayed as the faithful witness who remains true to God despite tribulation. Yeah, he suffers. He is slain. And he is also the present one. We saw it in chapter one, how Jesus walks among the golden lampstands. And in verse 20, we learn that the golden lampstands are the churches. Yeah, Jesus is here today walking among us invisibly and by his spirit. And this present one who walks among the churches speaks words of comfort and challenge. And we receive them through the scriptures. And we see that this faithful witness, this present one, is also the lamb who was slain. And chapter 5 presents him as not merely uh, there on the edge of the throne of God, or maybe in a secondary seat, the way a prince might be seated on the dais of the throne room beside his father and lesser than his father. No, 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 no. Chapter 5 presents him as standing, quote, in the middle of the throne. And he's standing 
a code for resurrection, even though he was slain. The lamb that was slain and now lives also reigns with God the creator, sharing in the glory and devotion and worship that is due to God alone. And very often within this lovely book of Revelation, the writer breaks into poetry and hymn and song, and nearly every page has some sort of poem or hymn or song addressed to the Lamb of God or to the triune God or to the Father upon his throne. The book revels in worship. And so I'll say that one of the great themes of the book is not disaster, but doxology. The glory of God, not trouble and sorrow. And forth, as we've already seen now, that coming one, this Christ is the coming one who will bring to fulfillment God's purpose for the world. It's not possible that that prayer should never be answered. Your will be done on earth. That prayer will be answered by the goodness of God, and by the agency of Jesus Christ. And so in the book of Revelation, then, we respond to these great truths by, by responding to the call to our own faithful witness and resistance against the powers of evil. By attentive listening. Did you catch that blessing in the opening lines? Blessed is the one who reads. I, I feel good about that. Blessed is the, those who hear and take to heart. The words of this book, attentive listening to the word of God. Without that attentive listening, we are sunk. And I'll say that three times in my reading of this book, I did not listen attentively and went astray in my understanding. And then a fourth mark, I'm sorry, a third mark, a life infused with worship. This book is full of worship. If our lives are not infused by worship, then we are confused and we wander astray. If the worship of God is not the principal pillar of your life, your building shakes. And then forth, God's purpose will be fulfilled. And that purpose is a good purpose. And we see that in this book by chapter uh, by the various uh, chapters that speak of the final day, the day of uh, the day of harvest in chapter 14, the day of the victory of the Lamb in chapter 11, um, many other scenes of final salvation, final judgment, that people from, quote, every tribe and tongue and language and people, there they are worshiping Jesus Christ before the throne. A multitude whom no one can count. Yeah, the Jehovah's Witnesses make much of a certain number of 144,000 a symbolic number, surely, but accompanying that 144,000, whatever that may mean, and we'll get to that maybe later this summer, is a vast multitude whom no one can count from every tribe and tongue and language and people. And there they are worshiping God and the Lamb. That is, salvation will have been proved to be massive before the great and last day. This is a book of immense hope and optimism in the mission of the church. And so we find in the close reading of this book that uh, the majority American opinion among evangelical Christians is often just dead wrong, as if the book is only of the future. No, no. As if the book is about escape 
from suffering. Oh, no. And as if the book is about the end of the world. Oh, no. Maybe you know that song from R.E.M. from, what, 35, 40 years ago? How's the line go? It's the end of the world as we know it. Anyone know the rest of the lyric? And I feel fine. Yeah, that's it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Not the end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. That is, I'll be resurrected. And the afflictions of my body and my mind will be gone. And I will be, well, dare I say it? Well, you'll be it too. We'll be glorious. We'll be glorious. Healed entirely in body and in soul. And so John's book is about that. And there are episodes, yes, of dire judgment and difficulty and pain and suffering and sorrow, and episodes of martyrdom too, some literal, some figurative. But the bottom line of the book is glorious in the effectiveness of the gospel of Jesus. And so I, John, am your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Now, as we look at these key words, we find that um, John uses them persistently in the book, these three words, tribulation or suffering, kingdom, and perseverance or patient endurance. That tribulation term happens five times, and uh, we see it first in verse 9, of course. But in the letters to the seven churches that follow, in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus says to the church of Smyrna, I know your tribulations. Modern versions say afflictions. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and they are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. All right, is suffering part of our lot as Christians? The answer is yes. And if you don't want to be crucified, don't hang around crosses. Maybe you've got a cross around your neck. Don't forget that that was a symbol of death and the worst sort of Roman execution. The most ignominious of all deaths was the death of a cross in that world of the New Testament. We use that symbol as the sign of Christian identity. But let us not forget that it was the equivalent of the hangman's noose and the firing squad and the gas chamber though much more painful. And if we follow the master in taking up our cross, we recognize, or ought to, that we are subject to suffering and death just as he was. And we follow in his steps. But Jesus tells this church at Smyrna, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. Suffering is a fact for the Christian. And St. Paul assures Timothy and Timothy's readers that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's quotation. And so Jesus pronounces a blessing upon those who are persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the eighth and last of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 7, we find the last occasion of this word tribulation. 
and we see it to be glorious. John sees this vast crowd. Who are these? He asked the interpreting angel who accompanies him. Who are these? And um, the angel replies, these are those who have come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Well, the kingdom of God is here. But it's also in the midst of a world which has the kingdom of evil. And both kingdoms vie against each other. And it seems to me an opinion. I'll say this. I'll label this as opinion. That as the history of the world goes on, the strife between these two kingdoms intensifies. Now, that's opinion. Don't take that as gospel truth. I think it's a warranted opinion. But I think that the meaning of this phrase, the great tribulation, is when these two kingdoms especially conflict before the end. When, when, when conflict is intensified to the greater degree. And who are these? They are the ones who have come out of this great tribulation. They've washed their robes. That is, they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They are redeemed by his blood. And maybe they suffered martyrdom. But they have made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Next word. Kingdom. I, John, am your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom that are ours in Jesus. Notice verse six of our chapter. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and father to him be glory forever and ever. That line is drawn from Exodus 19, six, where God says to Israel through Moses, after having brought them out of Egypt and brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai, I have carried you on Eagle's wings to myself. Wow. Israel belongs to God. They're out of Egypt. Slavery is no more. A few lines later, the first verse of chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I brought you on eagle's wings to myself. And in the line that follows, now if you will obey me fully, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, that kingdom of priest idea is not to enter the kingdom for the first time, but rather promotion within the kingdom. Israel's kingdom became a kingdom with priests. The goal was to be a kingdom of priests. And the reaching of that goal was postponed till the New Testament. St. Peter tells us in his first letter that we are that kingdom of priests. And by priest, we mean those who have the power to intercede between God and those who are estranged from God. Priests are the intermediaries, those who patch up the damage between heaven and earth. They reconcile by prayer in the Old Testament by sacrifice. And the church, Peter tells us, is a kingdom of priests. And so verse 6 harkens back to that reality and to its fulfillment in Christ in the New Testament. He has made us to be a kingdom and priest, each one of us. And we are the brother and companion, the sister and companion of John in that kingdom. In chapter 5, we read this, verse 10, again addressed to the Lamb of God. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And so we can be very sure that this is not just some passing theme within the book. One of its 
architectural points, one of its tent stakes, so to speak. And we find that this word kingdom happens nine times in the book, four times of the kingdom of Christ, four times of the kingdom of evil, and one time of transition. Turn to chapter 11, if you will. And there we have the seven trumpets coming to their climax. If you've read this book at all, you may remember that there are lots of seven sets of sevens in the book, seven letters to the seven churches, chapters two and three, seven seals on the great book of destiny in the hand of the Lamb of God, chapters six through eight, seven trumpets sounding their warnings. And when we get to chapter 11, we're at the seventh, the last trumpet. If we read St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, we know that when the last trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise. That is, it's the consummation, it's the glory of Christ's kingdom now fulfilled. And in chapter 11, verse 15, we see the transition point from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. How many have sung that line in Handel's Messiah? The Hallelujah Chorus. Have you sung that? Yeah. And uh, in Handel's rendering of it, uh, you know, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. So we see that in this book, we have actually episodes of final salvation, final judgment again and again and again. It's not just one unfurling of history, as I thought when I was 18 and knew everything. It's a very different kind of story where at the end of each of these cycles of seven, seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls of wrath, etc., we find the consummation of the kingdom of God, either final judgment or final salvation or both described together. And here in chapter 11, verse 15, precisely in the numerical center of the book, in numerical center, placed there on purpose by John, is the declaration that the kingdoms of the world are to be not doomed, but doxologized and transformed into the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Hallelujah. Satan's kingdom is doomed. We Christians know it. The world, when it thinks rightly, knows it too. Satan himself knows it. He knows his time is short, says chapter 12. Yeah, he knows his time is short. He knows he cannot win. And so I, John, am your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom. And what's our third great term? The perseverance, that is the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Notice that last clause. They are ours. That is, they belong to us. They really are here. It's not just a command to do and be and strive toward. No, no, no. They are ours. We possess them already. What do we possess? Tribulation. And we receive it as a gift to share in Jesus' sufferings. Kingdom, we receive it as a gift, knowing that it shall be consummated. And patient endurance, that too is gift. It is ours, but only on one condition. It is ours in Jesus. 
to be in Jesus is to possess these three things. And if we possess the patient endurance, then we shall survive (laughs) whatever tribulations the devil may throw at us. It may kill the body, but it cannot kill the soul. Those are the last words of Aldrich Zwingli, dying on a battlefield. Yeah, they can kill the body. They can't kill the soul. And so I, John, am your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. There you are tempted. There you are wavering, it seems, on the edge. What belongs to you if you're in Christ? Perseverance. The gift of endurance in the faith of Jesus. And so in the letter to Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 2, I know your deeds, says the living Jesus to this church. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And I know that you can abide wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Hallelujah. What a lovely word of praise for this Church of Ephesus. That church will not get off without some critique from Jesus. Only I think one church gets off with no blame at all. But what a wonderful word of praise for these Christians in Ephesus, which, by the way, was John's um, adopted hometown. At least 40 years of his life, he preached in the churches of Ephesus. And the seven churches that are named in this book are all on the same 250-mile Roman road, a kind of long circuit for what the Romans called the province of Asia, which for them doesn't end in Korea, but rather ends in Western Turkey, okay? The province of Asia was from the Aegean Sea, just east of Greece, to a couple hundred miles beyond that, inside the Turkish peninsula. That's, that's the province of Asia. And those seven churches are seven cities on that same circular Roman army road, which became the mail route, the travel road, the trade route. And uh, Ephesus, John's home base. You may remember that at the foot of the cross in John 19, Jesus commits his mother to this very disciple. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. And Christians in Ephesus still remember that it was there that Mary had lived for decades longer, and there she had died. And a church remembers the place of her burial. I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate the wicked and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have not grown weary. Hallelujah. Mary was part of that group, at least for some decades. Hallelujah. Verse 19, same chapter. Now the words to the church of Theatira. I know your deeds and your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. All right, improvement. And to the church at Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. What's the hour of trial? final judgment, and on the wrong side of judgment. That is, the church shall be vindicated and not condemned. 
And so what we find then is that the church is called to endure patiently, supported by God, with a gift given to every Christian. Chapter 14 says it again. I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 10, after talking about captivity and sword and martyrdom, chapter 13, verse 10 says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Yeah, they might, they might try to kill us. Sometimes that happens. But notice what happens then by the end of this story or what happens many times within the unfolding story as we visit the day of final judgment and final salvation. I've already referred to chapter seven, which is one of those victory scenes, a kind of uh, sneak preview in this movie of the mind. Verse 13, chapter seven, one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? Sir, you know, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now listen to this. This is beautiful. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's the destiny. That's the destiny for every true Christian. And John, we find, is our brother and companion in these things. That is in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.